You have just entered the Liberty Lighthouse, where we cut through the fog of politics with common sense and logic. Coming to you from Pennsylvania, the state of independence. Here he is, author of the book, Progress, Really? U.S. Navy veteran and your host, Peter Serafine. Welcome to the Liberty Lighthouse for Friday, May 5th, 2020. I've got a whole lot that I want to talk about today, and if I don't get to it all, we'll put some something off until next week. But I want to talk about all of these business owners that are attempting to open their businesses, many of which against the uh, mandates of their states or counties. Some of them have gotten some coverage, like uh, Shelly Luther in Dallas, who opened her hair salon. But I don't think anybody's really given the whole story. They tell bits and pieces of it, but they don't do it from beginning to end. So I want to do that couple of different things in, in uh, North Carolina. One, well, one tattoo shop, uh, just a county or two over from me. And then hopefully, if I still have time in the second segment, I have uh, Steve Davies from Convention of States Project. He is the director of the COS Project here in Pennsylvania. And we're going to talk about some of the uh, objections to calling a Convention of States. The quote for today, the duty of a true patriot is to protect his country from its government. And that's Thomas Paine. So let's light the candle on this thing and get her going. Welcome to the Liberty Lighthouse. With your Liberty Lighthouse keeper. Your beacon of common sense. Your wiki, if you will. Peter Seraphine. We urge you to join the conversation by calling 64-MY-RIGHTS. That's 646-974-4487. And sign up to be a member at liberty-lighthouse.com. That's right. Call or text the Liberty Lighthouse at 64-MY-RIGHTS. Love your questions, comments, and concerns. Now, since everybody has probably at least heard a little bit of the story of Shelley Luther and her salon in Dallas. Let's start there. So, timeline. March 22nd, her area goes into lockdown. From March 22nd to April 21st, she abides by the lockdown. April 21st comes, and she opens Salon Alamode, her her salon in Dallas. And she has a couple of armed guards that were there, because I don't know. I don't know if she did it because she didn't know if there'd be protesters against her or if she thought the police might come and be, you know, a little over diligent. I don't know why the armed guards were there, but they were there. And a couple of the news sources reported armed vigilantes. All right. Um, Mr. Uh, Reporter, a vigilante is somebody who goes out and like enforces justice outside of the law. These people were there with guns, but that doesn't necessarily make them vigilantes. As far as I can tell, they were there just to protect Shelley Luther and or her business. Anyway, so uh, the 21st comes, she opens her place, the armed guys are there. The police show up and they write her a ticket and they go away. And then they come back later. I don't remember when, but they come back. And now they give her a cease and desist order from the county judge, which she tears up. Then she has to go to court and she goes to court on the appointed day. 
But before going into the courtroom, she makes a bit of a statement. And part of her statement is part I want everybody to hear. And that was when asked what anybody could do to help her, she said, open your businesses. They can't jail us all. She knew she was going to jail. And turns out she was right. She went into court. The judge heard the case, gave her an opportunity to apologize, to which she said, I'm not apologizing for trying to feed my family and the families of my employees. And the judge put her in jail for seven days for contempt of court. Now, literally just a couple of hours after she is sentenced to seven days, Governor Abbott says that salons will be allowed to open on Friday. So if she had waited one week, she would, wouldn't have been in jail. Then I believe it was the, second, the next day after she was sent to jail, the attorney general demanded that she be released from jail and said that the judge in the case had completely overstepped his bounds. And also, the day after, the lieutenant governor said that he would pay her $7,000 of fines and offered to serve her time under house arrest. Now, just as of yesterday, the Texas Supreme Court said that she be released from jail and that no business owner to be jailed again for violation of shutdown orders. That's how it's supposed to work, people. She was respectful to the judge. She was not mean. She was following all the social distancing guidelines set forth by the CDC when she opened her business. She made people wait outside until their chair was ready. She had uh, not her full staff on. There was at least six feet in between the, the different chairs. Uh, they were all wearing masks. There were sanitizer stations throughout the salon. She did everything she could possibly do to make the environment as safe as possible. And she was jailed. But fortunately, a whole bunch of people stood up for her and now she was out. So I just wanted to make sure that we all knew the full story of that and the success story that it is, as well as her comment of open your businesses. They can't jail us all. Now, moving on, the next story that we have here is uh, out of North Carolina. Mr. Matthew Myers opened his tattoo shop, and after only being open for 10 minutes, he was arrested. And if convicted of the crime, the heinous, horrible crime of not properly social distancing, uh, he could spend a uh, 60 days in jail and up to a $1,000 fine uh, for opening his shop and, you know, trying to feed himself and his family. Also in North Carolina on uh, April 14th, some uh, a protester was arrested. So 100 protesters in their cars, all social distancing and such, uh, were gathered and the police showed up, the, the rally police and the sheriff's prison transport. Hmm. Why do you think the police would show up to a protest and already have the prison transport there with them? Looks to me like they went there intending to arrest people. Well, 
you know, since they brought the prison transport, I guess they just had to arrest somebody. So when one unfortunate protester chose to get out of her car, she was arrested for violating the uh, social distancing rules. And when the group that organized this protest asked the Raleigh Police Department why this person was arrested, the Raleigh Police Department's reply was, protesting is not an essential activity. Okay, somebody in the Raleigh Police Department does not understand the First Amendment at all. Protesting is absolutely an essential activity, especially when you think your government is overstepping their bounds and becoming tyrannical. The next story is a, a little happier story as far as I'm concerned. We all know that like New York... Remember when uh, New York City created the the phone line where people could take pictures and turn in the those horrible violators of social distancing rules? They set up a phone number that you could take a picture and send it to them so they could get police there right away and, and break it up. Well, funny stuff there because they got mostly, uh, you know, uh, pictures of people giving the governor a bird or the mayor a bird and uh, uh, dick pics and just, you know, horrible memes and people calling him Hitler. So that didn't last very long. And that's a good thing. And this is kind of along those same lines. Missouri had something set up where you could call in and snitch on your neighbors. And what the snitches didn't realize is that their snitching was, uh, well, it wasn't necessarily anonymous. It was uh, subject to Freedom of Information Act requests. So, a good patriot requested the information, got the names of 900 residents who had snitched on their fellow residents, and posted the names and addresses. I think it was names and addresses. Anyway, posted it all on Facebook. Love that. We Americans should not be snitching on each other. Citizens snitching on citizens is uh, basically what the communists want you to do. Communism survives because of that basic activity. And now that we've brought up communism here in this episode, that kind of brings me to one of the one of the notes that I made for myself for the week too that I wasn't sure how to fit in. But hey, look at that! I just segued right into it without even trying. This is a quote from Nikita Khrushchev. Remember Nikita Khrushchev? Probably not. Not unless you're really old like me. Uh, well, in 1959, Nikita Khrushchev made a speech, part of which was, and I quote, We can't expect the American people to jump from capitalism to communism, but we can assist their elected leaders in giving them small doses of socialism until one day they awaken to find they have communism, end quote. If you listened to the Liberty Lighthouse last week, we talked with Adam Yomtov, and part of what Adam and I said was that in 1913, when the income tax was created, well, that's a communist ideal. It is step number two in the 10 steps of the Communist Manifesto in uh, Communist Takeover. Step number two is to instill a progressive income tax. And we certainly have a progressive income tax. But look around. 
what other little dribs and drabs, little tiny tidbits of socialism have made it into our society? And I'm not even talking about now during the Wuhan flu coronavirus lockdown. I'm talking before all of this mess. Well, Medicare is socialist. Social Security is obviously socialist. I mean, it's right there in the name. Social Security. Those are two just glaring examples that pop into my head every time somebody even says the word socialist. But what else do we got like now, like during the Wuhan flu you know, debacle that we've got going on? Well, that $1,200 check that they mailed to everybody was socialism. That sounds like a whole bunch of little droplets, or as Nikita Khrushchev said, small doses of socialism until one day they wake up in communism. And I would argue that we all woke up in communism about seven and a half weeks ago when our government decided that it was just going to shut down the world. Remember the, the quote at the beginning of the show, the duty of a true patriot is to protect his country from its government. My friends in blue or brown, my law enforcement officers who hopefully listen to my show here, I support you 99.9% of the time. I believe in law and order. I like police. During these troubled times, our law enforcement officers need to think for themselves. Law enforcement is there primarily, first and foremost, to protect the rights of the citizens of our nation. Most of the laws of this country are written to protect our rights and to protect one citizen's rights from another citizen. Many of the things being proposed as laws right now, or presented as laws, I guess is the better way to put it, aren't laws. Their mandates or edicts or executive orders. They did not go through the legislative process. There may be a state or two out there that actually went through the legislative process, but most of them did not. The police, you all need to take a moment and look at the situation and look at what you're doing. Should you try to encourage people to follow these edicts? Of course you should. Should you arrest someone because they walk through a park with their kids? Probably not. Should you arrest somebody like Shelly uh, Shelley Luther, somebody who opened their business so that she and the 19 other people who work for her can feed their own families? I wouldn't think so. There's a sheriff in the next county over from me who has made it very clear that they will not be stormtrooping in to any of the businesses that may violate Governor Wolf's shutdown orders. And I applaud that sheriff for having the courage to say that he will not do that. There's a tattoo shop in Hollidaysburg, again, the next county over from me who went on Facebook and made the announcement that they were going to open uh, their studio, his studio, on Friday the 8th, even though 
the governor's orders do not allow for tattoo shops to open on Friday the 8th. And he made it very clear that fines, arrested, whatever, doesn't matter. He has to open his business. Well, a few days, a few days before that, I had gone onto social media and made it clear that I would drive and support any business who violated the governor's order and open their doors. I would, if it was within driving distance, I would go support. So when, when I found out that he was opening his tattoo shop, I messaged him and said, Hey, what can I do? I know what I want for a tattoo. When can I get in? And by the time I had reached out to this gentleman who's opening his tattoo shop, he was already booked for over a month. That is awesome. I wish him the best. I wish the best of any of our small business owners who have the courage to open against these, well, what I think are tyrannical lockdown orders. Many of these governors and mayors have gone completely power hungry. They're drunk off of the power that they gave themselves when they declared these emergencies and demanded these shutdowns. They now think that they are supreme leader and that that's just wrong. I went along with the lockdown for those first two weeks the initial two weeks that we were told it was going to be two weeks to flatten the curve. Then I started my own private silent protest. If you follow me on social media, you've seen my silent protests. I have four signs in front of my house. One says, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Quote from Ben Franklin. Another, of course, is Patrick Henry's Give me liberty or give me death. The third sign says, I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. And that's one of my favorites. That's Thomas Jefferson. And that simple seven-word quote basically sums up what it means to be an American citizen, in my personal opinion. I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery period. And the fourth sign is the actual dictionary definition of tyranny. It says, tyranny, noun, arbitrary or unrestrained exercise of power. Now, I don't know about what state you're listening from, but here in my home state of Pennsylvania, (laughs) the state of independence, These lockdowns and shutdowns have been, well, very arbitrary. They have horribly crippled the small businesses while just basically handing piles of money to Walmart and companies like Walmart. Why is the the dress shop down the street not allowed to be open when Walmart can sell dresses? Why can't the flower shop down on the corner sell flowers but Walmart can? This doesn't make any sense to me, and it just is feeding the beast that is Walmart, which is really funny considering that most of the people that want these lockdowns to be continued are the same people that hate big companies, but now you're giving more and more money to the biggest companies on the 
planet. Hmm. That's a little counterproductive, don't you think? Okay, so that's the four signs in my front yard. And like I'm pretty sure I've already mentioned on the show, I have my flag flying inverted. So uh, there's a nice visual representation of distress in America. I don't know if we woke up in communism or not, like Nikita Khrushchev has suggested, but I think it's pretty darn clear that we the people need to take our government back. There's three ways that I can see that that could be done. Either vote out everybody in our government and vote in all fresh new people. It's way number one. A convention of states is the only other non-violent way that I can think of to take back control of our government. And then, of course, there's the way that we did it in 1776. And I really don't think anybody wants that way. But those are our three options to get a hold of our government. I've already said we should vote out everybody who's, who's uh, served more than two terms in Washington. But I'm not holding my breath for that. Because that never seems to happen. So, that brings us back to the Convention of States project. I don't remember how much detail I've gone into about the COS project in the past, so I'm going to give a little bit of a high-level overview here of, of what it's about. Article 5 of the United States Constitution spells out how uh, amendments to the Constitution can be made. It spells out two different ways. The first way, and only way that's been done thus far, is that a bill is introduced and passes both houses of Congress with at least a two-thirds majority. Then it has to go to get approval, or what's called ratification, from three-quarters of the United States states. Then it becomes an amendment. The second way, which has thus far never been done, is for at least two-thirds of the states to call for a convention of states. Then, once the convention of states is called, all the states get to send delegates to the convention, and the convention has one purpose, to propose amendments to the Constitution. Now, these proposed amendments, any proposal that comes out of this convention of states, still has to get ratified by three-quarters of the state legislators. So, in today's world, that would mean 38 states still have to pass any proposed amendments that come out of the Convention of States. So, the COS project is the biggest movement I'm aware of to call for a Convention of States. And I think it's a great idea because that helps to get power back to the states. And if you remember... The 17th Amendment back in 1913 basically stripped the states of any power in Washington by making it so that senators are direct elected by the people rather than appointed by the states. So we no longer have representation for the states in Congress. Okay, that's the basic high-level overview of what a convention of states is and how it would work. In just a few minutes, when we come back, we're going to have Steve Davies from the Convention of States Project here at the Liberty Lighthouse 
talking about some of the objections to the idea of a convention of states. There are people that are honestly afraid to do it. So we'll be back in uh, in just a few minutes. And during the break, hey, why don't you look me up on social media at P. Seraphine on Facebook and Twitter. Go to liberty-lighthouse.com and, I don't know, sign up, download my ebook. You're listening to the Liberty Lighthouse. Join the conversation now. Just call 64-MY-RIGHTS. That's 646-974-4487. A little over a year ago, I got so frustrated with progressive society that I wrote a short book called Progress. Really? You can buy my book on Amazon for $5.99 in the paperback form, $0.99 in an ebook, Or go to liberty-lighthouse.com, sign up to be a member, and download it from the file shares page for free. Progress, really? Just questions. At what point is progress not really progress anymore? Let me tell you why I chose Anchor to host my podcast. First, it's free. It's one of the few hosts I found that really is free. They have all the tools that you need. You can make your podcast on a computer, or you can download their free app and make edits and uploads straight from your phone. So, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, I say download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. You're listening to the Liberty Lighthouse Podcast. Mr. Steve Davies, welcome to the Liberty Lighthouse. Thank you, Peter, for having me. Uh, it's been a few years since we spoke, but you are the director of the Convention of States Project for the state of Pennsylvania, if I remember that, correctly. That's correct. And I have you here today to not only promote the Convention of States Project, but I also want you to dispel or uh, address some of the objections to the, to the COS Project. Very good. A friend of mine... He's a, he's a big Second Amendment guy, and we went to high school together, and I mentioned the COS to him once, and he was terrified of a runaway convention wrecking the Second Amendment. Right. Let's start with that. Well, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways, I guess, to look at it. We, we're, we've been aware uh, here in Pennsylvania, and, it, and it's not limited to Pennsylvania, but it's been a big, big deal here that there are folks out there who are strong Second Amendment supporters who fear an Article 5 Convention of States because they believe that a convention cannot be controlled, that the delegates are free to do whatever they want, and that would include perhaps proposing something that would dramatically uh, weaken or even eliminate the Second Amendment. In addition to that, that the delegates could also propose a much easier ratification process for something like that to become part of the Constitution. Um, Where where I am with this right now, Peter, is that if you read the Second Amendment, um, there are words in there like shall not be infringed, uh, you know, a a well-regulated militia. Um, these, these, you know, these kinds of phrases are in there and there's been a lot of debate about those phrases over the years and, you know, things like whether or not the second amendment is a, is a collective right or a right of individual citizens, that sort of thing. And what the second amendment folks would say is, look, you've got to go back to what the framers intended when they wrote those words. You have to look at what the, the, you look at the dictionary, look at what the common context was for, for those words back when they were written. 
And I agree with that. Um, original jurisprudence is what it's called. And I totally agree with that. That's exactly what you have to do if you want to get a complete original understanding of what the Second Amendment means. And I would argue that's the only thing that it means is what the framers originally intended. Unfortunately, the Second Amendment folks that oppose commission states do not take the same view relative to Article 5. They don't, they don't believe that we need to take a look at what the framers originally intended when they wrote the words, a convention for proposing amendments. They don't, they don't believe in original jurisdiction, Article 5. And if, in effect, they're doing the same thing to Article 5 that they believe uh, enemies of the Second Amendment are doing the Second Amendment. And I frankly don't understand it. Um, the, the, their position is based on a, a gross misunderstanding and a twisting of the history of the Philadelphia Convention. And I have found that in many cases, they will look for any, any court case, any comment by a law professor to, to diminish and destroy this, the, the Article 5. And I, I, I to say that, but, but that's exactly what's going on. And uh, I'll, I'll be much more, I guess, explicit about these kinds of things and this position, you know, going forward. But we've got to get beyond this. Um, the tyranny that we're seeing across the nation and across the states right now uh, is going to is I, I think is something that we cannot ignore, and we really have to find a way to uh, to to overcome these concerns that the Second Amendment folks have. Well, I look at it as. You know, the, the, the article, I'm sorry, the Article 5 Convention of States is the gathering of the delegates of the states. The state gives those delegates the power to vote whatever they want to vote or however the state wants them to vote, sets the rules for those delegates. And then even if, let's say that the so-called runaway convention theory holds true and they, somebody were to propose a, an amendment that does wreck the Second Amendment. Well, that proposed amendment is still just that. It's a proposed amendment that still has to be ratified for three quarters or by three quarters of the states. There are thousands and thousands of amendments that have been proposed and only 27 have ever passed. So it seems to me that that's a, a bit of an irrational <laughs> Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and that's part of the argument that we've been making about this for quite some time. What's unfortunate about it is in order to fully understand the position they're taking, you act, you have to spend some time understanding the history of the Constitution and, and how it came to be. Um, one of the things that's a, a huge, I think, misunderstanding and, and, and maybe deliberately so in terms of the, the uh, education establishment, if you will, is a belief that when the delegates were sent to by the by the original states to the uh, to the, the Philadelphia Convention in 1787, that they were restricted in terms of the scope of the convention to only proposing modifications to the Articles of Confederation. And what folks would have you believe, and you can find this kind of language on the internet, is that instead the delegates ignored the commissions from their states and they proceeded to draft a new document and propose a ratification process that was not consistent with what the article state of uh, the articles of confederation called for the problem with that is that's not factual and it, it's taken me several years and a lot of research to to come 
to fully understand that roughly, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, this notion of a runaway convention was first proposed by by really the, the progressive liberal side of the, the political spectrum in, in an effort to stop an Article 5 convention that was being considered in, in the 1960s relative to, uh, to reapportionment. And, um, and what's happened is that, that theme, if you will, has been picked up and continued to modern times and, and a belief that, hey, you know, we can't control this convention. Well, again, that's not what happened in 1787. The delegates did have the authority for the states to propose a new form of government. They weren't restricted to just modifying the Articles of Confederation. And while they did propose a ratification process that did not require unanimous approval, instead they proposed that only nine states would, would need to ratify the new constitution in order to have it placed into effect. The thing that you won't hear them say is that for any state that did not ratify the constitution, they would not be bound by it. And that's the part of the story that everybody has either forgotten or that folks deliberately leave out and say that what the delegates did and what the states did when they ratified the Constitution is something that today, if it were to be replicated, would be a, a, a problem with the Second Amendment. And there's, there's just no factual basis for that position. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to, to, to fight the fight, if you will, on this. But it's unfortunate under the current circumstances that we have this huge distraction here in Pennsylvania with so many problems and so many issues with tyranny. And we have an organization that lobbies our representatives and senators against an Article 5 resolution, again, because they fear a, an impact on the Second Amendment. Well, I'm a, a supporter of the Second <clears throat> Amendment as well as a supporter of the Constitution as a whole. And I don't see the conflict. I, I, I just don't. I think uh, our government at the state and federal levels it has become completely out of control. And I think they've proven that they don't really care what we the people want. And I'm of the belief that uh, the Article 5 convention is, is uh, the only way short of revolution to remind Washington that we're the ones in charge. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, you know, there, there was an attempt to have a Article 5 convention or actually have a convention of the states prior to uh, the, the, the start of the Civil War in early 1861. They didn't, the, the, the states got together, not all of them, but many of them, not under a, an Article 5 call, but it was an attempt by the states to see if there's anything they could do to head off um, what they knew was, was in the works. And obviously it was too little too late. And that's where we wound up. Um, I, I, I don't understand why there's such a fear of a meeting because that's really all this is. It's a meeting of, of the states delegations to get together and talk about um, potential amendments limited to certain topics <clears throat> that would uh, would restore the balance of power between the states and the federal government that, that we've lost dramatically over the last hundred years. Uh, whatever the delegates come up with in convention uh, still has to be uh, ratified by the states, as you mentioned earlier. And I, I will tell you that um, yeah, you know, we've got 99 legislative bodies at the states in, in the in the country. Uh, Nebraska is a is a unicameral state, and it it only takes 13 of those 99, assuming they're in different states, to block an amendment. The the hurdle to get an amendment passed is significant, and for, for that reason, I believe that only amendments that have broad popular support have any chance of being passed. And so, something that involves the Second Amendment, something that involves abortion, for example, 
or immigration or things that are super hot button issues, I, I'd be surprised if they even made it out of convention, much less you know ever got ratified. So again, I, it, it's an argument for the status quo. I, I don't understand it coming from conservative organizations. I do understand it coming from the progressive left. But you know, we're in a situation right now, if we don't get in front of what DC is doing um, as, as uh, illustrated and, and amplified by this COVID response, we're, we're, we may be past the point of no return pretty quickly, from, at least from a fiscal perspective. I, I, I think what the Fed has done um, with respect to the fiscal response to COVID is, is unconscionable. It's immoral. Uh, it's irrational. It's irresponsible. And in, in parallel with that, we've seen a huge development of tyranny at the state level that has dramatically impacted, uh, you know, our, our everyday lives, our, our liberty and our freedom in a much more direct and immediate way. So there's two battles we need to fight, one in Harrisburg and then one in D.C. And I, I, I'm interested in fighting both of them. But for the sake of our children and grandchildren and future generations, we have got to get a, our, hand, our head around and our hands around this notion that we can borrow, the federal government can borrow or print money without limit. It, it's going to destroy our republic and destroy our children and grandchildren's futures. I believe that the, our, our physical irresponsibility is probably our biggest threat to our country. Uh, just in the last episode or two here, I don't remember which one, I talked about the, the physical response to COVID. And it, it, it disgusts me that they're now on what, the fourth round of stimulus bills and not once has anyone made any suggestion to cut spending in non-essential portions of the government. Like it seems to me that if it were a household, like, you know, your income, the tax dollars going into the federal government has been drastically cut for we don't know how long. I mean, if it was your house and your salary was being cut, the first thing you would do is cut your expenses. Exactly. Um, you know, we've thrown roughly 30 million people um, out of work in the last, I don't know, six or eight weeks. And many of them are now receiving from the government, which is, you know, it's, 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 it's a form of welfare. Again, it's immoral. We're now cross-subsidizing the states and I, I, I'm very fearful that this is going to be something that's going to be very, very difficult to unwind. Uh, a lot of states are dragging their feet about uh, about reopening. And, uh, you know, the money that we're spending uh, that's being committed to this, I, I, I agree. I, I don't hear anybody in D.C. saying stop, although I know there's been a little bit of pushback in the Senate anyway and, and with some Republicans relative to additional spending. But I'm, I'm fearful that we're going to wind up with the federal taxpayers bailing out states and municipalities. And when you get to that point, I, I, it's almost like the point of no return. If we're going to allow, you know, the citizens of, of each state to, to cross subsidize and to bail out, you know, poor decisions made by, by legislators and, and governors and mayors and other states, I, I, I think federalism is dead at that point. I, you know, we need to let states fail. We need to let, we need to let the, the people who elect incompetent, government officials at the state level to, to pay the price for that. And I don't know what I, else we can do other than scream loudly that, you know, that's how this has to go down. I think federalism started to die a long time ago. Uh, 
specifically 1913, the 16th Amendment, 17th Amendment, and the creation of the Federal Reserve. But that's for a completely different topic. Um, I want to make sure that we talk about the uh, the mock convention that was held. I thought it was fabulous. Um, I, my the, the balanced budget amendment that was proposed by the by the mock convention is is genius in its simplicity. I absolutely love that particular one. The pushback I've gotten from other people again was that only Republicans were represented <laughs> at the mock convention. Is that true? You know, um, it's interesting that the, the mock convention you're referring to was a simulated convention that was uh, held by the Convention of the States Organization in September of 2016 in, in Williamsburg, Virginia. And I was state director at the time. And we knew, you know, I, I knew that this event was going to happen. I had gotten lots of contacts from the national organization about trying to find, you know, three of possible delegates from Pennsylvania to attend the uh, to attend the simulation. So I reached out to legislators and uh, I even reached out to a member of the Second Amendment organization uh, here in Pennsylvania that's so adamantly opposed to COS and said, hey, look, you know, it's an all expenses paid trip. You can go to the convention, the simulation rather express your opinion. You can, you can be a representative from Pennsylvania. And I, I think that's probably what happened across the country. Um, I think every state director, every state organization tried to find folks that were representative of the state. But I'll tell you, at that point in time, there was absolutely no interest and probably still the case in Article 5 um, outside the Republican caucuses in, in, most, in most of the states. We do have a minimal amount of bipartisan support here in Pennsylvania. There are two representatives and one senator who are co-sponsors of the COS resolutions. But I would tell you that the 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 complaint about the makeup of the delegates at the convention is is legitimate. And so what I tell people is, look, what is what is the best thing we got out of that simulation is really a, a proof of concept relative to the process. Um, the the amendments themselves that were proposed are are folks would say, well, those are pretty conservative in nature. Well, that's true, but they're also consistent with the application uh, that's represented by the COS resolution. So I, I, I have no doubt that if an actual convention is called, even for the, uh, or for any, really any set of, of amendments, but let's just, in this case, say it's the convention of states, there'll be 34 states at that point that have, have passed the resolutions and the convention is called. That means there'll be 16 states that have not. And there's no doubt in my mind that those 16 states will send delegates to the convention with specific instructions to do everything they can to prevent anything coming out of the convention that remotely resembles the convention of states application topics. And I think they'll do everything they can to bring up the Second Amendment, to bring up uh, abortion, to bring up all of these things in an attempt to destroy the effort. Because there is nothing, in my view, more important to the swamp in D.C. and Frankly, the swamp in the state capitals is to is to make sure that an effort like this fails and that the people never realize that the power is really with us. It's not with the the the, the federal government, and and it's not with the Supreme Court. It's we the people. And a convention, and I really don't care what the the topic is to some extent. I think a convention needs to be called as soon as possible to demonstrate that under Article Five, the states can get together and discuss any topic, at least two-thirds of them so choose, and, and propose amendments. And that's what the framers intended. 
They knew that we would get to a point in time where the, where, ter- where the federal government anyway would be so tyrannical that they would never propose things that would restrict their power or put into place, for example, fiscal sanity, um, you know, absent pressure from the people. And so they gave us the ability to do this. And for us to not take advantage of it, especially now, is is tragic, I guess. I, I don't know what else to say. It's tragic that we would sit back and let what's going, what's been going on for the last eight weeks continue indefinitely. And uh, I, I, I hear it from a lot of people that when you get into a situation of fear and panic, this is what you wind up with. You wind up with people tolerating this kind of stuff, and it needs to stop. I, we, we need to wake up quickly. All right. Now, you said about this, this past eight weeks, and uh, I really think that this coronavirus <laughs> pandemic or pandemic or epidemic or whatever you want to call it, I think that this massive mess that we've been in over COVID-19 has done more for exposing ineptitude in our government than anything in my own lifetime. I mean, the fact that testing was was you know, explicitly blocked because of bureaucracy and the fact that you know, private labs were told to stop because of bureaucracy. Because I think those things are battle cries. And I, I, do you, within the Convention of States, have a plan to try to point all of this out and capitalize on this this complete ineptitude that has been yeah I, w- I'm, I we do here in Pennsylvania and I'm sure at the national level as well some of the things that you mentioned just now are things that people ordinarily wouldn't pay a whole lot of attention to however the economic impact on virtually every American has been so significant that I think they're going to want to know why what happened why is it that we had to destroy the economy? I mean, we were, we were coming into 2020 on a, on a huge economic high. I mean, best economy, you know, in my lifetime, I'm 64. And then all of a sudden it got destroyed. And I think a lot of people are going to want to know why. And uh, I, I think that they're going to want to go beyond what the mainstream media is saying. They're going to want to go beyond what, you know, some of the folks at the national level, um, you know, the technocrats are saying and, and say, I really want to know what it is that was so bad about this thing in hindsight now that caused us to have to destroy my life, uh, you know, my, my children's lives potentially and create such economic chaos. And, and, you know, the money matters. Um, you know, as, as James Carville said back in the nineties, it's the economy stupid. And what, what these folks have done is they, they peeled, they, they have opened the can of worms or the Pandora's box relative to severe economic impact. And people are not going to forget this, not for a long time. And I agree with you. While I hate what's happened, while it's, it's, it's probably the worst failure of, of government in the history of our republic at all levels, by far, um, the silver lining in this is it's gotten everybody's attention in a big way. And I, I'd like to think the swamp has is, is taken, you know, it's, it's a bridge too far for them now. And they've unleashed something that they're not going to be able to contain and they're going to really regret it down the road. I, 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 I would like to think that the average American is, is going to wake up on this thing and the people that are in the middle that don't really care about left or right or whatever, when their livelihoods are destroyed, all of a sudden they're going to care a lot. And my hope is that in November, 
we're going to see blowback unlike anything we've ever seen in the history of the Republic at the, at the ballot box. I hope you're right. There's, there's really only two ways to fix our government and that's, you know, the ballot box or the convention of states, or let me say, there's only two nonviolent ways. (laughs) Um, The ballot box hasn't historically worked because generally speaking, we, the people don't really pay attention to who we put in Congress and, and Congress is, is really the more important vote than the presidency. In my opinion. Yeah, I agree. You know, the framers intended for the, uh, the legislative branch to be the most powerful. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, we destroyed a big part of federalism and a big part of the power the states had with the, uh, you know, with the 17th amendment, that, that was an abomination. And, uh, you know, most people would say, well, I'm not going to give up my vote, yada, yada. Well, that's fine. And there are ways through convention of states, through our application to, to, to work around that, to put back in place the controls that the state should have relative to any fiscal decision, any decision made by the federal government. That would include, you know, um, the, the nomination or, or, or the confirmation of Supreme Court justices. The state should have a direct say in that. And we gave it up when the 17th Amendment was passed. Uh, I would like to think, and this won't probably be the first thing that happens in a convention, but over time, uh, I would like to think that the people will say, we can never have a repeat of this. We can't have a repeat of what Wolf did in Pennsylvania. We can't have a repeat of what the Fed did in 2020 with COVID. We, 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 we will never survive it again. So let's, uh, let's figure out a rational way to, uh, to distribute the power. It's been way too concentrated in D.C., and we're paying a huge price for it right now. So, um, again, I, I hope it's a major wake-up call. I, I see it in my family. I see it in people I know who really didn't pay much attention to constitutional matters and to government matters in the past. Well, I guarantee you they are now. Um, uh, you know, it's just it's just insanity. Uh, Wall Street Journal article not long ago, they, they rated the governors in terms of their response uh, to this COVID crisis. And, and there were four states that got, the governors got Fs, and, and ours is one of them. So, um, you know, this is something that I really hope the citizens of Pennsylvania do not forget for a long, long time. We need to pass the Convention of the States resolution here in Pennsylvania. And we've got some, we've got some, some problems in Harrisburg we need to take care of. So those are the two things that I'll be focused on, you know, going forward. All right, Steve. Well, we've got a little over three minutes, and I want uh, the the bullet points of the Convention of States resolution. What are the the areas? The uh, is it five bullet points? Five. We have three three topic buckets three. in our resolution. If folks go online um, and they're free to contact me, but the, the the resolutions that are pending in the General Assembly are HR two hundred six and SR two thirty four. If you take a look at either of those resolutions, uh, you will see a paragraph that, that is effectively the convention application that says we want to have a convention called to consider term limits on federal officials. That would be Congress and the Supreme Court. We want to consider any amendment related to fiscal restraints on the federal government, which could include a balanced budget amendment, but it's broader than that. And then the last one is really, for me, the, the, the most important one, and that is any amendment that would... Uh, restrict the, the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. So, you know, again, I, we want to have the conversation. I've told people, I, I don't know if we'll have anything come out of the convention or not, but we need to at least be 
mature enough and adult enough to be able to sit down and have the conversation. And if nothing comes out of it, fine. Um, we, you know, we can always have another convention, but there's such a fear of getting people together and having a discussion um, that, that, it, that astounds me. And it, and it doesn't astound me when it comes from the, uh, from the far left and from the folks in DC. I know they're gonna fight it tooth and nail. What's tragic is that we have organizations and you know, John Birch Society, Eagle Forum, uh, and others here in PA that uh, they, they don't want to see a convention call because of this whole runaway uh, myth. Uh, I tell people we don't have a problem with a runaway convention. We have a problem with a runaway imagination. And that's the truth. I, I agree. So uh, anybody wants to get involved, it's cosaction.com? Correct. Uh, cosaction or conventionofstates.com. Is the, is the URL, so conventionofstates.com. If you go there, you'll be able to uh, quickly uh, get to the petition. And uh, if you want to, raise your hand about getting involved in Pennsylvania, and that'll put you in touch with me and, and the rest of the team. So just go to conventionofstates.com and, and start from there. Um, I, I'm happy to help anybody who has any issues with that, and you can get a hold of me through the website. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Davies. Uh, it's you. The Convention of States Projects is mentioned here at the Liberty Lighthouse many times over the past thirty episodes or so that we've done. Very glad that. Yeah. You thanks very much, Peter. And uh, you know, keep fighting the good fight. That was our guest, Steve Davies, director of the Convention of States Project in my home state of Pennsylvania. And just so you know, all of the profits from the sale of my book, Progress, really go to fund this. Convention of States project. I hope you learned a thing or two. That's all the time we have. Until next week, protect your liberties. Once they're gone, there's no getting them back. God bless America. Thanks for listening to the Liberty Lighthouse podcast. Be sure to sign up at liberty-lighthouse.com to download Peter's free ebook from the file share page. And don't forget to call 64-MY-RIGHTS to leave comments for the show. That's 646-974-4487. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend about Liberty Lighthouse. And wherever you listen, subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated.